0: Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to the podcast, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors, featuring Tim Flannery, David Haskell and Nicholas Rothwell, in conversation with Stephen Lang, recorded live at the 2017 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you, Penny, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this session with uh, uh, David George Haskell, Nicholas Rothwell, and Tim Flannery. Now, the three gentlemen on the panel today are are so exceptional uh, and bring such individual perspectives to our world that I think it's important to spend just a moment or two considering their achievements. Uh, The problem is that if you were to list them all, we'd never get started. But let, let me start with David here. Uh, David was born in London and raised in in France, in Paris. He's now a resident of New York and sometime of Tennessee. He holds degrees from the University of Oxford and Cornell. He's professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South. He's a fellow of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, the American Council of Learned Societies, and an elective member of the American Ornithologists' Union. I'm telling you, this is the short version, okay? His scientific research on animal ecology, evolution and conservation has been sponsored by the National Science Foundation, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the World Wildlife Fund amongst others. His first book, The Forest Unseen, A Year's Watch in Nature, was a winner of the National Academy's Best Book Award for 2013, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize nonfiction and a, a winner of the Reed Environmental Writing Award. His latest book, The Song of Trees, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors, which we're talking about today, follows the lives of a dozen trees around the world examining the way, the many ways that trees and humans are connected. James Gorman in the New York Times said of Haskell that he thinks like a biologist, writes like a poet, and gives the natural world the kind of open-minded attention one expects from a Zen monk, rather than a (laughs) hypothesis-driven scientist. Nicholas Rothwell is a a journalist and the Northern Australia correspondent for the Australian newspaper. In the 80s and 90s, he worked as a foreign correspondent reporting from the Americas, the Pacific and Europe, latterly during the Yugoslav conflict. In the late 90s, he sought out a posting in Australia and has lived in Darwin since that time, although I think you now live in Cairns, is that right, David? Uh, Nicholas, he, he won the Walkley Journalist Award in 2006 for his coverage of indigenous affairs is an award-winning writer of several works of both fiction and non-fiction, including Heaven and Earth, Wings of the Kite Hawk, Another Country, The Red Highway, Bellamore, and the new book of essays we'll be discussing today, Quicksilver. Rothwell has been described as one of our finest writers of place. In Quicksilver, he demonstrates why it's impossible to understand Australia without venturing into the interior and far reaches of the continent, divining the sacred Rothwell moves effortlessly from Eastern Europe and Soviet Russia to the Pilbara. Please welcome Nicholas Rothwell. Lastly, we have Professor Tim Flannery. Tim is one of Australia's leading writers on climate change, an internationally acclaimed scientist, explorer, and conservationist. He was named Australian of the Year in 2007. He's held various academic positions, including professor at the University of Adelaide, director of the South Australian Museum in Adelaide, principal research science at the Australian Museum, and visiting chair in Australian studies at Harvard University in the development of organismic and evolutionary biology. I have to be very careful how I read that. Um, his books include Throwing Away Leg, Here on Earth, The Future Eaters, The Weathermakers, and The Atmosphere of Hope. Under the Gillard government, he was appointed climate change commissioner with a specific task of communicating the science of climate change to the public, explaining the reasons, amongst other things, why it's necessary to price carbon. His new book, the one we're discussing today, is Sunlight and Seaweed, an argument how to feed, power, and clean up the world. Tim's books have a tendency to attract hyperbole. Elizabeth Colbert, the author of The Sixth Extinction, described the atmosphere of hope as thoughtful, candid, and, yes, ultimately upbeat. It could not be more timely. It is just the book the world needs right now. The Sunday Telegraph of all papers says, quite truthfully of sunlight and seaweed, the man is a national treasure. We should heed his every word. So look, because our panelists all come from such varied fields, I want to do. I've got a more traditional panel here at the moment. We're going to, we're going to have a conversation in about 15 minutes, but I thought we would begin by asking each of them to just give us a little five-minute dissertation on the subject of connectivity. And I'm going to ask David to start. Thank you, and good morning. It's a delight to be here. Uh,
1: the old view of biology, which is the, the, what we now call the Western scientific study of life, the old view regarded the fundamental unit of life as the atom, the individual. And that view said that, that at root, we're alone, that we have these separate individuals and sure, they interact with one another, they, they, they connect in various ways. And the study of those interactions is the study of ecology and, and of, of evolution. And I think what we're seeing now in the, uh, in the scientific literature at all different levels, from genetics, biochemistry, microbiology, evolutionary biology, is the passing away of that idea and the, the, the rise of an idea that says that the fundamental nature of life is, is not separation, it's not individuality, it is relationship that we exist and come into being only through relationship. That interconnection is not a secondary phenomenon laid on top of atomism. It is, in fact, the, the ground of of being. And that sounds all, all very mystical and so forth, and, and maybe it does have mystical dimensions, but this is a, an insight that is being, perhaps... Uh, maybe a block of wood that is beating us over the head, uh, a vigorous insight that we can't avoid, uh, perhaps first originating in, in ecology and now spreading through throughout science. And what do I mean by we're made from relationship and that relationship and connection are the ground of, of being? Well, think of a tree leaf. The old way of depicting a tree leaf in, in a biology textbook, with, here's the epithelial layer, here's the palisade layer of cells, the spongy mesophyll, and then the epithelium on the bottom. All beautiful, very clean diagrams of plant cells.
0: But in fact,
1: if you look inside that leaf, there are dozens of species of fungi, hundreds of species of bacteria. There are viruses, nematodes, tiny little insects. And if you remove those other organisms from the leaf, the leaf doesn't, can't defend itself from pathogens, it can't survive drought. So its function, its life, depends on those relationships and in fact emerges from the connections among these many, many different twigs on the tree of life that have converged and knotted up in this temporary manifestation of interconnection, which is a tree leaf. The same is true for our bodies. Remove the fungi and bacteria from the human body, remove our connections through the breath and through eating to other species, and we fall out of existence very, very quickly. Remove our social connections, emotional, intellectual connections to others, and of course, we, we wither and die psychologically very, very quickly. And so, at the level of cells, at the level of, particularly at the microbial level, at the level of our nervous system, we are made from interconnection. And I've tried to find some of those stories and, and to tell them by by listening, by going to different parts, of, particularly to forests and trees in different parts of the world, to sit down and shut up for a change, and try to attend to what, what I'm hearing. So a tree in the Amazon, a tree in Manhattan, in Scotland, show up again and again to that tree, sit down, and listen to the sounds in that tree, and follow those sounds back into the stories, talk to the people, this is another way of listening, of course, to talk to the people whose lives are closely connected to the tree and follow those stories back. And at every place, whether it's in a seemingly very forested place where humans have a a rather slight influence, It turns out humans are deeply interconnected. Our lives are deeply interconnected with the lives of trees and, of course, other organisms, but trees are the great exemplars of this. And in places where nature, so-called, seems to be absent, in the middle of a city where most people say, oh, this is an unnatural habitat, there is no nature here. In fact, what made that city? The mind of a great ape that has spread out of Africa rather recently. And so the city is as natural As the rainforest, it doesn't mean it's all beautiful or good, but it is another manifestation of ecology and evolution's creativity. And in that place, too, our lives are deeply interconnected with trees. So my work over the last few years has been listening to trees in all sorts of ways and then trying to tell those stories about how our lives and tree lives are connected at levels of biochemistry, of ecology, and also through social networks.
0: Thank you, David. Nicholas Rothwell.
2: Thanks. Um, Welcome, everybody. Thanks for coming along. Look, as I was listening to David, and as we were shooting the breeze before this session, we were talking about interconnectedness with a quite treeish emphasis. (laughs) And I feel very much fenced in by trees. Just right now, because I live in a in a very rainforesty world, and as as I was letting my mind roam over the subject, I thought about efforts which have been made in in on this continent to seek to listen to the um, to the landscape and to the to the forests of, of the of the Great Divide, and my mind turned to um, the French composer Messiaen, who famously. Uh, was very taken by the the lyrebird that great beautiful um mimic and generator of sounds i'm sure you've all heard the extraordinary recordings of lyrebirds which can imitate power drills and couples having a domestic argument and you know and, and lyrebirds also bowerbirds have this extraordinary facility to to mimic so much so that in my current domestic environment, I often think I'm being called by my companion. It's actually a bowerbird which is um, imitating, and you know there are tremendous confusions which can derive from that level of connectivity, and even occasional arguments. I have to say, <laughs> so no, you didn't call me. Yes, I did. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, Messiaen, uh, in I think around the time of um, before his his ordeal in, in World War II, I was particularly interested in a, a relatively rare lyrebird, the Alberts lyrebird, which I think is, is considered to be even more primal, a songster than its common garden variety. And, uh, and he sought to uh, interweave into some of his compositions what he heard from the voice of, of this lovely creature. And the music is very compelling and very sweeping and takes you away from yourself like all of his music and like all great music. And I've recently been conducting unwittingly a sort of thought experiment which might find approval from 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 David or maybe not. In which um, I've been listening to quite a lot of baroque opera up where I live with the windows open. And <laughs> not very loudly because I think there's not much point in deafening yourself with... With opera, but just listening to it, and you know catchy tunes they repeat. They have certain elements in common with birdsong. Um, of course, it was considered an element of um, you know virtuosic composition to be able to compose like a bird, to have trills. You can see, of course, where I'm going. That the um, there is a um, an, an element of nature even in the highest uh, components of our culture, and I've found that. When you put on a punchy aria from, you know, a Vivaldi piece, it will provoke a certain frisson of interest from, you know, the yellow-spotted honey-eater or the spangled drongo. There will be an uptick of activity. Now, of course, this all sounds like good knockabout fun, in a sense, it is just a, you know, an easy entry into a vastly complicated field. But there's something emotionally rather satisfying and striking about listening to a poor, rude, short-lived creature which we imagined in past times to be so far beneath us on the scale of evolutionary sophistication, responding in this magisterial way to a human signal. What is it that you get when you stare into the eyes of a bird or an animal? I don't know, of course, I don't know. And I think you say much the same in one of, in one of your books. Um, but there is a sense of being freed and released from the, from the confines of the self and from the confines of the species by living in an environment where man is not the measure of all things, where there is a, a degree of science, where, where trees cast their shadow and where there is another, another set of rules. Um, that just by way of an
0: introduction. Thank you. Over you to Professor, professor Flannery.
3: Wow, well, how do you follow that? was magnificent. <laughs> you know, I, I guess when I, I... I think the question of connectedness is so potent for us because it begs a further question of what are we, what am I? in a sense. And it's a question that's played out, I guess, throughout human history. Um, You know, not that long ago, we all believed we were made in the image of a divine creator. You know, and that other animals were below us, there was a hierarchy uh, which was reflected in our use of the natural world and our relationship to it. And in 1858, you know, two great scientists proposed a new idea, Darwin and Wallace theory of evolution by natural selection, which, I mean, I grew up with as the natural way of thinking about the world. Um, And because I studied evolution through fossils, I have a very kind of four-dimensional view of it. And, you know, if you include that dimension of time, the question of connectedness becomes very, very acute because we are a branch on the tree of life. We are all intimately connected. And the great innovations in the evolution of life occurred so early on that we all share a very broad base of genetic similarity. So famously, ourselves and chimpanzees differ at about 1.5% of all of our genes. That accounts for all of the differences between us and the two chimps. Myself and a fungus probably differ at 50% of the genetic base, right? So the fundamentals are all there from the beginning. So when I look into an animal's eyes, I know that what I'm looking at is a branch of my own being, in a sense, built on the same framework. Uh, I I can uh, not guess, I can sort of know, in a way, that what that animal is thinking in its own way is broadly the same sort of things that I'm thinking. When I see fear in an animal's eyes, I know it's genuine fear. It's not a a mechanical being that just is somehow faking fear or faking some other emotion. Um, And I'm not trying to say that we are just another animal in the world. I don't believe that at all. Um, We are different. We are becoming the mind over the land. Uh, in a very meaningful way. We are, you know, we, we're the only way that our planet can see itself. We we, we, we have a very a special role in some ways uh, in that great interconnectedness. Uh, and as we, it, it's a great dilemma at the, at, the, at the heart of this, you know, because there's a reductionist science that David was talking about, which Charles Darwin spent his whole life doing, taking apart evolution, understanding the mechanism bit by bit. Co-founder of the theory, Alfred Russell Wallace, at the age of 80, wrote one of the greatest books ever written called Man and the Universe, which was about the human relationship with the planet and the various organs of the planet and the way uh, the human destiny, in a sense, might play out into the future. Published in 1900 and still highly relevant today so there's that, that division in the science has been there. I, I, I'm not sure quite how to summarize this. I think Nick has done a far greater job than I have in terms of talking about connectedness. But, uh, but it is the central question. What are we? How do we relate to the planet? Uh, what, what it, and therefore, what meaning is there in our lives? What is our, what is our human destiny? Um, And these are great questions that will play out, I think, as this little machine here turns us into a murmuration of humans. You know, murmurations of birds are those great flocks that change. Well, this is making us into a murmuration of humans. And I look forward to seeing what the outcome is. Thank you.
0: And, and all three of you have, we, we had this really quite interesting discussion, I had to kind of cut it off in the tin beforehand because I thought we were going to, it was going to get too interesting in there and we wouldn't get any of it up onto the stage, but we're, we're, you can see the, the, the kind of deeper and very ethereal questions that we're going to talk about, about connectivity and about the human place in the landscape. But I wonder if we could start on a kind of more practical note, because um, uh, Tim has written this book, uh, Sunlight and Seaweed, which I, I highly commend to everybody, because it's one of the most concise analyses of where the world is in terms of not just climate change, but pollution and various different things. But it's also a book that, while it's kind of quite bleak for the first six chapters, becomes very positive because it's analyzing the problems. Uh, it becomes much more positive in the in the latter ones with some some quite possibly very viable solutions. And I wondered if you could, Tim, if you could start by sort of talking about some of those problems, particularly say um, the the problems with pollution and solid soils and things like that that we're, that we're faced with, and, and population issues. Yeah? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we live at
3: a really interesting moment in human history where we've acquired a, an enormous cumulative debt, really in terms of CO2 in the atmosphere, in terms of uh, toxic soils, particularly in places like China, where rapid industrialisation has been catastrophic. So, you know, 20% of China's soils, for example, are are heavily polluted with cadmium, you know, and and you look at the other pollutants in the soils, it's horrific problems. Um, So the atmosphere, the soils, the oceans polluted with plastics, these are all great legacy issues. We're riding on the back of an enormous wave of human expansion. So there'll soon be eight and a half billion of us on the planet. So these raise questions, really fundamental questions, about uh, what we will do about all of this, how we will react with the planet. And I guess what my book is about, really, is a search for the levers that will allow us to deal with those legacy issues. It's not so much about cutting carbon pollution or cutting pollution, because... in Developed countries, some of that's already happening. It's how we deal with this vast legacy. And if we start with, with population, it, it's it's so fascinating. I was deeply influenced by Paul and Anne Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb. For yeah. me, that was like... it was. You know, my hair was standing on end when I finished reading it. And that's, and a, that's 1985, isn't it? Really? That, yeah, even earlier, I believe. It, I okay. Think, yeah, yeah. So, quite terrifying. But so much has happened. We are evolving so rapidly, you know, that... It, it looks now, from a demographic perspective, as if we will reach population replacement levels in terms of family size, sometime in the next five years as a species. It's an incredible result. Population will continue to grow because there's a lot of people of reproductive age and we're all living longer, which is a, another thing. But um, you know, there are trends that are mitigating against that. You know, In China, since 1990, the sex ratio has been skewed so that there's about 120 males for every 100 females. Um, some years, 124. Some years, 117. But, you know, that is a... Yes, it's a massive problem, but its impa- its implications for demography are just enormous. There will be a co- population collapse towards the end of the century uh, due to that bottleneck of um, just... Uh, fewer women than men, and that's spreading into places like India. It's already, I mean, uh, sex ratios on that scale are already seen in places like Georgia, in in the southern parts of the old USSR. So we're living in a a world where things are changing extremely rapidly, and um, I think we need to know about that as we scope our potential future. As far as the legacy issues go that that population has to deal with, what we really need are the big levers because this, the sort of stuff that we're dealing with is often on the gigaton scale. So carbon pollution in the atmosphere, great example. We're putting 50 gigatons of CO2 or CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere every year. How big is that? Well, you'd have to put all of humanity into the atmosphere twice to get to a figure that was about the same in terms of scale, mass. Yeah. Um, if you wanted to take one-tenth of it out, you would need to plant forests over all of the contiguous 48 states of the USA just to get five gigatons out. So big problems. So we need big solutions. And the big solutions, I think, lie in the most powerful... the the most abundant sources of power and power capture, which is sunlight. You know, if we could capture all of Earth's sunlight for one hour, we'd run humanity for a year. Big, big solutions. And plants that grow very rapidly. And the plants that grow rapidly are the seaweeds. They grow 30 to 60 times faster than land-based plants. And they can offer uh, huge potential in terms of sequestering carbon very rapidly. So I can see uh, seaweed being used to effectively combat the worst aspects of climate change between 2050 and 2100 if we start investing now in the technologies
0: to allow that to happen. So that's essentially... And and it's interesting, you're not actually talking about people eating seaweed, are you? You're talking about a lot of the time is that... that, uh, This is one of the fascinating things about that book is that you're talking about these vast seaweed farms that exist on on quite deep levels in the ocean and you're growing shellfish in amongst it because the seaweed make it suitable for those other... Creatures to live there. Is that right? That's right.
3: So the, these ocean-going seaweed farms are just now getting going. In fact, the first one is being built with with some money from the Australian federal government off the coast of Indonesia. So it's a, this is a hundred square metre array of basically a structure that seaweed can grow on that uh, exists twenty five metres below the surface, so that shipping won't run into it and you don't have storm problems and so forth. That's mobile. It moves around and, and controlled by satellite telemetry. Um, uh, and you, you can and, and it pumps up cold water from deep in the ocean, from 300 metres down, uh, cold, nutrient-rich water, and irrigates the seaweed and makes it grow fast. Uh, you can then use that seaweed structure to grow all sorts of shellfish because the seaweed buffers the acidity in the ocean as it takes out the CO2. So quite a efficient system of... of Uh, aquaculture, integrated aquaculture, and when the seaweed is finished growing you can cut it off, it sinks into the deep ocean and is effectively out of the atmospheric circulation. So there's some real potential, but we're just at the beginning stages of this
0: this enterprise. And look, I I don't want to get involved too much because Tim's on a panel with a few other people and we don't want to talk about technical problems all the time, but it, it is just really fascinating because one of the other uh, techn- technological fixes you're talking about is this thing CRT, isn't it? Which is yeah, um, I've yes, got it written yeah, yeah. down here somewhere. Concentrated, Concentrated solar sorry. thermal, yeah? yeah. Could you just talk to that just for a moment sure, before well, we go on to other things? Yeah. Well, yeah. Just to put it in context, at the moment, solar panels
3: produce, or in 2015, they produced about one percent of world's energy use. And it seems to me that current solar panels are a bit like telephone lines when Alexander Graham Bell first put them out. You know, no one could imagine them being used for the internet, for example. Very early stage stuff. But there are some interesting solar technologies, including concentrator, solar thermal technologies, that concentrates the sun's light, allows us to store the energy, and allows us to really become alchemists. You know, once you've got abundant, clean, high-quality energy, you can break apart molecules like CO2 and and use uh, use the carbon to grow carbon fibre. Now, this has already been demonstrated, these sort of things. So, these new technologies will allow us, I think, uh, to become alchemists in a way, or do at least what the old alchemists did, and create our needs out of thin air, basically. Yeah. And you already see them operational. You know, probably some of the tomatoes that you've eaten this week have been grown without using a drop of fresh water um, or. Any fossil fuels—they come from a place called SunDrop Farms in South Australia, where uh, 10% of Australia's uh, trust tomato crop is grown. The stuff you buy in supermarkets—and it's a concentrated solar thermal plant that distills seawater, produces this stuff very efficiently—and um, I, I think it's the future of food.
1: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Could I add, sort of, as, alongside the sort of the technological solutions there? talking about making things out of thin air, there's a role of forests in this, which is part of the legacy that we have inherited is a a world that is, at least in some parts, largely forested. And that deforestation has accounted for a a third or a fifth of carbon emissions. And deforestation is still rampant over the world in the first dozen years of, of the millennium we lost 2.3 million square kilometers of forest but only 800,000 regrew and those forests are of course great repositories of carbon both in in the forest that we see but more importantly in the soils underneath that in the boreal forests there are three times as much it's three times as much carbon in the soil itself than in the roots and the dead organic matter than in the uh, above ground components in the forest and so these are the places that and, and in uh, the peatlands in, in southeast asia a lot of carbon held in and so we have an opportunity to hold on to those forests not that they can be the only solution to drawing down the drawing down carbon but if we do not turn our attention to protecting those forests we will we, all that carbon goes back up to the atmosphere and we lose fresh water and biodiversity and so forth and so i think this these, these technological tracks run in parallel with more sort of traditional conservation planning of, of land protection, and in fact are inspired by it. Yeah. So, so seaweed farms and so on are drawing on human creativity and the creativity of plant and, and algal evolution. Yeah, and I
3: couldn't agree more. The technology is just one, it's one tool. We also need the right moral compass. We need the right orientation to mm-hmm. want to use those tools. And make the investment, and we need nature on our side, as you say, with Yeah, so it's not Christ enough to have
0: the solutions; we also have to yeah. have the kind of political mechanisms yeah. to put them into place, not just in advanced Western democracies, but all over the world. Yeah, and uh, you know, this is, I guess, where the theme of connectivity really comes in a lot of the time. I, I was very taken, David, in your book about the Sabo tree, that first chapter in your book where you where you were talking about. The people who were living around that tree and who had a, a very reverential attitude, the sabo tree. I might get you to talk about the sabo tree for a minute, if that's all right? Sure. And, you know, that reverential attitude is, is present in, in many people's relationship
1: with trees. I mean, in the middle of Manhattan, people have a very reverential and very protective attitude to the trees that grow outside their apartment blocks. So this is not something that we need to go off to some you know, place that may seem exotic to us to, to find. But in, in the, the Sabo tree, this is Saber pentandra, for those of you keeping, pe- keeping a species list <laughs> as we move forward here, uh, that, that is, grows is a pantropical species. Uh, it, this is an enormous tree that, that arches over many of the other trees in, in the rainforest. And is, you can barely see it as an individual. It's so covered with epiphytes, with orchids and ferns and, and bromeliads. And it is the center of the creation story of at least some of the cultures in, in the Western Amazon, particularly the Warani, who, who both use the tree for, 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 for products, to, to help hunting and for food, and also as, as a, a, a symbol of the connectivity of life that brings us into being and sustains us. And, it, and this part of the Amazon is being looked to for oil developing. There's an awful lot of uh, buried fossil fuel under the under the Western Amazon and in Ecuador and and Peru. The uh, Oil developers are moving in at quite a rapid pace uh, with very negative effects for the forest. And the resistance to that movement of roads and helicopters and oil drilling rigs in the forest is coming from an ecological understanding of the forests. So some of the groups, the Kichwa, the Warani, have taken their understanding of how this forest works, a very pragmatic understanding of here is the the interconnectivity that gives this forest life and that we depend on, and have gone to Quito, which is up in the the Andes in a very different environment, and had those understandings written into the Ecuadorian constitution. So this is a country in Ecuador now that has forest ecology, an ecological notion of, of interconnectivity, grown into constitutional law and that that nature, including the humans who live, we are part of nature, of course, have rights, the right to evolve and the right to have clean water. How that will play out in, in the struggle over who gets to control the fate of the Amazon, we don't know. But it's a case where this notion of interconnectivity developed in the forest by people who know the forest very well, and then worked its way into the current manifestation of a nation-state, and can then be used in in these international debates about how and whether we're going to be extracting more buried carbon from under these forests to burn and put into the atmosphere. So the connectivity there is flowing from from very deep time, from these these uh, Cretaceous Jurassic deposits of uh, of oil into you know day by day
0: politics of what's happening in, in in some countries. And that that work that the Ecuadorians are doing is, is kind of in contrast in some ways to what those people the the Warren is, is is the, well, the Waran people there because they were very resistant in many ways to even Western scientists coming into those areas and looking at that because they felt like there was something about that atomization of the Western scientific approach mm-hmm. to nature was, uh, was, was failing to see what was central to their relationship with landscape. And it was almost like, and I want to bring Nicholson after you, I'd like, because it's, mm-hmm. I think this ties really into his field, is this is that they thought there was a kind of limit to what the Western mind could know.
1: Absolutely, and I think Western science is discovering this. Um, It's taken us a little while to do so, but our language embodies an atomistic view. So we gave a species a name, Saber pentandra. That's this species. Well, in fact, that species is comprised of multiple different evolutionary lineages, the fungi, the bacteria. It's also a product often of hybridization, so different plant evolutionary lines moving one into another. And so our language puts out an illusion of, of separation of tidy boxes that doesn't really exist in the forest, or only exists when we tip our heads one way. In another way, we see that relationship is more important. And so within within Waurani culture, there are no individual monikers for species names. A plant species is identified by naming the set of relationships around which it forms. So what are its uses? Is it in a high area or a lower wetter forest? A Western yeah. scientist would say that's the same species, but the name in Guarani language it does, does not reflect that. Now, all of these are summaries, and you know any set of words is uh, fails to capture the, the complexity of life, right? So it's not that the atomistic or the relationship view one is wrong and one is right; they both are different angles, different views into a set of, of connections. You know, names are so important
3: that that way. I was, recently just pondering us, like Homo sapiens, right? Very proud to be Homo sapiens. But recent data suggests that we are, we Europeans at least, are actually hybrids between Neanderthals mm-hmm. and the people who came out of Africa. So about two to four percent of our genetic code will be will be Neanderthal. And um, the great Ernst Takel, you know, c- created a name for the Neanderthals, just two years after Homo neanderthalensis was coined, he called them Homo stupidus. So, in fact, we are a hybrid between Homo sapiens and Homo stupidus, which is much closer to the truth. But (laughs) but we never consider ourselves a hybrid species. It's extraordinary. We don't see ourselves, you know. uh, We're we're pure, mate. We're pure. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Nicholas, can you pick up on that about language in the Australian continent? Is that... Look, I sure can. Um, I, I, I must say
2: Dr. Tim just used a phrase in his previous uh, expositional reply which resonated very strongly with me and I'd just like to loop into that for a moment before coming on to the vexed question of nomenclature and language and terminology and the the way in which the language world that we're uh, using or confined to shapes of course are. Uh, understanding of externals. But you spoke uh, of, of man, mankind, in all his or her glory, as the unique organism through which the planet may see itself. And I, I find this you know, a, a, a liberating and bewildering and uh, elevating thought that there is something about human consciousness, even though I suspect we would probably all now tend to feel that there is a continuum of consciousness between uh, man, higher animals, birds, insects, even plants, even trees. I shouldn't say even, should I? Sorry. <laughs> plants, trees, in all of their complexity. You know, when you, when you look at a flock of birds or a, a nest of ants, and you look at them properly, or you listen to this world, you think, yeah, sure, look, I'm a lot brighter than this individual ad, but you put together a million of these guys, and their concerted and directed activity is in its own way very formidable, and they constitute a significant enemy, and, um, or fel- not enemy, a contending figure in the, in the, um, um, the evolutionary space. If this is... Our task to to reflect on and um, add to or be an element in the the being system of the planet. It is one to to take seriously. It's one to to enter into consciously. Uh, of that, I'm very sure. I think this is a a, a really a concept worth clinging on to and and giving time to. Of course we're the prisoners of our, our language and our, um, our nervous and sensory systems. There's a very famous philosophy paper which is um, <coughs> called What is it like to be a bat? And it was written by a man called um, um, Ernest Nagel. And it's a very interesting question. What is it like to be a bat? What is it like to be another human being? How can we know? We're in a world of radical indeterminacy. But what language does is set out a, a common field of terms. And if I'm using, using words on a page or using words to you, uh, we agree on the convention that the words mean certain things and we can find our way around the world by uh, accepting that code built upon that very basic building block is the entirety of um, our communicative species. And that power of communication set us up in past times as masters of the world and with that power we have made of the world its current um, heavy inheritance which it is now uh, a, a task for the future to, to um, to pay, if I can continue the metaphor. When we come to this country, I think you seem to asking me specifically about the, the language that we bring with us in our backpacks, the language that was bought by Captain Cook and, uh, and Commander Philip, and which is still the language with which we seek to, to come to understand the. Um, the world which behaves in a very different way from the landscapes where that language was grown into being and where it came into harmony with with um, outside nature. And so fire has a completely different role in Australia. Fire is not so much a threat as a germinating force. Water is much scarcer and it behaves in different ways. The language which we are... Adapting to the continent, and I think we all know that vernacular Australian is an extremely impressive uh, idiolect which has been evolving rapidly, and which we would do well to to treasure and to to explore and indeed to listen to to listen to ourselves as we use it. Vernacular Australian seeks to come into into contact with with the world around it and as we come to know the functioning of the continent better so um, our words adapt now having said all that there is still a gap of a kind between the, the linguistic storehouse, the toolbox of language that we have and the world of, of Australian nature that we must accommodate ourselves to. I'm not so much talking about the cityscape, which is a, a, a pan-global cityscape. I've often felt in connection with Australian writing that there is a, a hushed and an almost reticent quality about the literature of this continent which relates to or has an awareness of that um, that gap which is as yet still un, um, unjoined and in this in this context it seems that the place of Aboriginal languages which have of course evolved over a very long time frame with the, the um, <coughs> landscape of the center and the north and the landscape of of the literal. These languages cannot be realistically taken into into English, into the the dominant tongue, but there is a co-evolution, there is a kind of fascinating interplay between them, more prominent in past times than now.
0: I can can hear David just wanting to leap in here there with something.
1: Yeah? Um, Well, one thing about the language, in particular from a North American perspective, I have become more and more aware lately of how noun-heavy the English language is and how verb-rich many other languages are. And Robin Kimmerer, who's a a writer in North America, who uh, is Ojibwe and a plant scientist and, and has tried to put those... Those ways of understanding the world together is, is struggling with this question of language and particularly the notion that a river is a noun versus a verb. And so, and in the language of her grandparents, uh, the river was a verb. It wasn't a static object or being, it was a, it was a process. And so, this is I mean, just having some awareness of that as, as writers and as we speak that our language boxes us in, but it also what would it be within the english language to introduce more verbs to to refer to processes and uh creatures that we now refer to as uh, you know as, as the little box and the object of, of nouns what's interesting isn't it the american
3: kind of um, idiom often turns nouns into verbs which is kind of famous
0: it's, it's interesting perhaps it's a reflection of that i don't know yeah I was talking to Kim Scott yesterday about this thing about sort of possibly incorporating the Aboriginal names for trees into the Neneal system, so that instead of calling a eucalyptus grandis, I mean, sorry, a, a flooded gum, a eucalyptus grandis, you might call it a eucalyptus and the Aboriginal word. But Kim brought up the complexity of also that that it would be called one thing in one part of the country and another in another, which kind of ties into what you were saying about the different... Tribes having different names for things, but the, it would be a great way of kind of incorporating that history of human human occupation of this continent into the Western system.
1: It could be, although you know, tr- sticking with the Linnaean system and the codes of botanical and zoological nomenclature, and then hooking onto them words from other cultures in some way is still a statement of power. It's like we're going to stick with our Linnaean system and then everyone else has to follow suit. The Mm -hmm. other, and I don't see this flying within the scientific community, although I think it's a deep, deep problem uh, that our our names are products of, of, say, in in North America, the birds are named Mm -hmm. for the place where the first white explorer shot them and have no relationship to where those birds actually breed, to their ecologies. Yeah. So our language, unless we step back from the codes of nomenclature, which are very strict and you know, great guidebooks about how we do this, it seems that that integration, is problematic because there are some deeper philosophical issues about what a name actually means, what its function is, what is is the role of it in our communication.
3: I couldn't agree with you more, David. You know, I I spent 20 years in um, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific Islands working with people, often in very remote areas, uh, doing mammal Mm -hmm. survey work. And uh, there are a couple of things I take away from that. You know, one is that There's usually only a few people in the village, usually older men and women, who understand the full panoply of these names, you know, um, and and what they mean. And and the passing on is often a bit of a secret, not secret, Mm -hmm. but you have to prove yourself somehow before Mm -hmm. you're admitted in. And because I was interested in mammals, often I would, it would take me a week or so to find the old guy who knew tree kangaroos really well or knew something else. But you'd go into the bush, take some stick tobacco, sit there for a few days. You know, I couldn't speak their language, I couldn't speak mine, but I had the lame list. So I'd say Debole, the tree kangaroo, and the man would literally transform into a tree kangaroo. You know, the behaviours, the way the eyes moved, everything is there, you know. Um, But they're a rare individual and they're often rather eccentric. They don't like being in the village. They like being out in the bush. You know, they're kind of loners, but they've got this huge, vast knowledge. Um, But you've got to use the right names. I remember going from one tribal group to another and um the names were similar but not quite the same and when i used the name of the op- of the adjacent tribal group in the area i was in the indignity the, the anger was huge mm-hmm. because how dare you use our enemy's name on our animals you know the, those people ate
0: my father or <laughs> ate my brother you know mm-hmm. um, so you just you've got to be careful no, no I, I don't want to interrupt this discussion, but we only have five minutes left to go. And, I, and I, so, I just—I mean—does the audience just want these gentlemen to keep talking, or do you want to take questions? Again? so just—just so just keep going, please. Okay. Sure. Anyway. <laughs> could, could I return to the question of
1: sort of human uniqueness? Because there's something that—I mean—I—I I, I hear where those notions of, uh, are coming from, but they also—it's an area that makes makes me feel a little. Um, that it doesn't jive with my experience, mm. um, that the, the idea that we are the eyes and the consciousness that will understand the planet, I think, puts something of a, of a disconnect between us and the rest of the community of life. And, you know, the magpies are the, are the Earth's supreme observers yes. <laughs> and the way that, that the magpie consciousness understands the Earth. And so we've got this multiplicity of understandings and we have such a tradition within at least the Western Worldview view of, of putting a gap between us and the others. And I think that gap is present, of course, in religious traditions, but also in the environmental movement where somehow nature is out there and good and we need to protect it. Humanity has fallen over here. An, an alternative view is that we are co-members of this, of this community and so our task then is to listen to the other creatures because our point of consciousness understands certain things The trees that have a very diffuse consciousness, it's sort of sourced all over their bodies, it's it's into their roots, it's an understanding, a mind, that is of a very different texture to ours. They have a point of access. The magpies, of course, have theirs. The fungi have theirs. Mm -hmm. And if we want to move forward in a way that brings all that together, we need to do, as as those other creatures often do, is to have practices of, of connection and of networking that allow them to make yeah. good decisions. So a tree, for example, if it's going to live in one place for 400 years, has to listen to yeah. the microbial community in the soil. It has to understand something about the birds. We have the option of moving on yeah. and of, of having a fossil fuel subsidy to help us with, with, that, with that process. So an alternative view is. We, the, question, the big question is how do we belong, and particularly how do we belong when we have become so deeply estranged from lived experience of other species? I, I, re- I really agree, David, with, with that. I,
3: I would only point out that when I mentioned that we are the mind over the land, I meant it quite literally, mm-hmm. in that we are a mind that can comprehend the entire Earth. We are, in very many ways, analogous to the brain in a body. So the brain has to listen to the body. The body has to listen to the brain. But the brain is such an overwhelmingly important influence, mm-hmm. you know, and we are such an overwhelmingly important influence by virtue of our numbers and our technology, that we really uh, are the mind over the land. And you know, the the one—it's really interesting thinking about humans and brains because we share so much in common. You know, where the brain is the most unbelievably selfish and and. A hungry, greedy entity in the body. Two percent of the body mass, twenty percent of the energy at least goes to the brain, um, and we are we are unbelievably selfish and greedy as a species. But the one thing the brain knows is that it must never bankrupt the body that that supports it, and that is the fundamental lesson that we, as the mind over the land, have to learn in relationship with the land. That we are we don't live alone. We are interconnected with it, or even though we have a special role, I think in that that relationship.
0: Nicholas,
2: I think here we come up to the last the last um, uh, philosophical question of the of the the problem. We can do a great deal to nature, for nature. Uh, we can destroy, we can save in national park enclaves, we can create refugia. And what what can it do for us? I don't mean <laughs> that in a in a tried sense. It it can it can feed our imaginations. It is from nature that everything in our symbological system comes. You know, the column is a tree, uh, decorations are leaves. This is all very plain. But if we listen, as you as you um, would would love us to, intently to nature, what Uh, What does it give us? I tend to feel that there is, uh, without wanting to reach too far, that in the great beauty of nature, and I realize that our sense of aesthetic beauty is poor, pitiful, limited, three-dimensional and and in its early stages of, of development, but in the beauty of nature we can locate some kind of truth there are uh, higher values whether they be mathematical or aesthetic which uh, confess themselves to us or which um, shine before us and I suspect in some wordless way all of those who seek to approach this overwhelmingly imbricated ramifying world of knowledge and organisms uh, think in terms of patterns and structures and perhaps that's what the, the eyes of the animals and the sensory organs of the trees if they apprehend us, are uh, computing and feeling as they move towards us. Any thoughts?
0: Well, it, thoughts thoughts have to be confined to 60 seconds each, okay? <laughs> yeah, uh,
3: well, Yeah. yes, I agree. I think it, it, all of that stuff is the okay. our shared genetic heritage. I, I, I'm convinced when I look at a, an animal tree that it's feeling the same, in its own way, the same things I feel. I don't think we're different in that regard.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I would say that we observe that beauty from within. We are part of, we're not observing nature out there, we're looking from within. And then that sense of aesthetics, that sense of beauty, particularly when it's based on a mature, over many years experience of one place, can then become a found an objective foundation for ethics, for ethical discernment.
0: Look, Thank you, gentlemen, for a fantastic discussion. Tim Flannery, Nicholas Roffle and David Haskell. Now, all three books, just fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers' Festival 2017. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.